Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm finally going to talk about January 6, 2021. We'll look at why there was such a gathering at the Capitol that day, and then explore what happened, and finally, why the Democrats and their January 6th commission are acting the way they are. All of the facts I will present are available via open sources. Let's start with why it happened. On Tuesday, November 3, 2020, President Donald Trump won re-election over Joe Biden. He had to overcome outrageous amounts of cheating that the Democrats perpetrated in several states, but he succeeded. So, at about 10.30 p.m. that night, several states effectively called time out. The largest Democrat-controlled counties in those states had withheld their vote totals, as they typically do, but they had already seen that their actual vote totals were not enough to flip their states from Trump to Biden. So they said they would stop counting. Actually, some of them had already finished their counting, so this was an especially dishonest ploy. And they kicked out all the legally required observers. They said they would not do any more counting nor change any results overnight and would only resume when the observers returned the next morning. But that next morning, we learned that those cheating Democrats had changed their results in those counties so much that they changed the results of each of those states. We all had the opportunity to observe this, and therefore we know that no so-called conspiracy theories are necessary to recognize that Trump won and the Democrats stole the election. There are many specific details about some of the ways the Democrats cheated, and I've detailed some of those on this program back at the end of November 2020. That episode is called Election Continued, and if you have any doubts about the claim that Trump won, I encourage you to listen to that and research true facts for yourself. The people who voted for President Trump knew as of 4 November 2020 that the Democrats were stealing the election and the Democrats had overturned the results of the election by the time the result was ultimately declared. But there are constitutional processes for certifying the election results, which ultimately could end up in a state-by-state vote in the House of Representatives if slates of electors were challenged on the 6th of January 2021 and if certain steps in a rather complex legal process followed on that day. That state-by-state vote would go based on which party had the majority of representatives in each individual state. So it did not matter that Nancy Pelosi was the Democrat Speaker of the House. The Republicans had the majority in more states and would win any such vote. Since no court had been willing to hear the evidence of the fraud and cheating in the election, and by the way, a lie that continues to be perpetrated is that courts ruled against President Trump on that question. In fact, they refused to take those cases because they did not want to be involved. They rationalized that it was up to the state legislatures and ultimately the House of Representatives. But since the courts were not thus available for remedy... That elector challenge in the House of Representatives was going to be the legal strategy for derailing the Democrats' overturning of the true results of the election that President Trump had won. Nancy Pelosi knew this, and she had to thwart it. President Trump also knew this, and he knew there would possibly be millions of patriotic citizens who would come to D.C. to cheer for that strategy to bring about the legal and just result. 
and between one and three million patriotic citizens did go to D.C. for that day for that purpose. They listened to an inspirational speech by the president. They sang. They prayed. But prior to the 6th of January, opponents of those patriots and the president had planned to infiltrate the crowd, dress themselves in so-called MAGA gear, notably those red hats, and act foolish and worse for the cameras. The and worse turned out to be very, very much worse, and the result was chaotic and tragic. A narrative has developed from that tragic event that is entirely perverse and purposely pervasive on all state-aligned media. The narrative says that the patriotic citizens were actually violent insurrectionists bent on doing what the Democrats had actually already done, namely overturning the election results. There are specific reasons for that uniform, repetitive language, and we'll get to that eventually. In the meantime, many of those citizens have been treated like terrorists, jailed and confined in solitary, awaiting trial for hundreds of days, although their actual charges are things like parading and trespassing. Pelosi has set up a January 6th commission to supposedly investigate the event, but that literally turned into a stage and Hollywood-produced TV series with no evidentiary rules, no cross-examination, nor rebuttal to any contentions proffered, and absolutely no pursuit of truth. Less visibly, but perhaps more perniciously, an intimidation campaign has been run by the Department of Justice. Attorney General Merrick Garland, one of the most contemptible enemies of justice in history, says that his January 6th investigation is the biggest investigation of any kind in the history of the United States. That means, listeners, that Attorney General Garland is running a bigger investigation over the events of January 6, 2020 than were ever done over the events of September 11, 2001. Did you catch that? That should terrify all who love America. For his part, Joe Biden has chimed in and compared the concerned citizens who wanted to champion election integrity to medieval torturers who, quote, speared, sprayed, and stomped on law enforcement officers, unquote. All of what Biden says is false, of course, but in the shocking video of him saying it, he never blinks his eyes during that time. It is so creepy and unnatural, many people have speculated it was a computer-generated fake representation of Biden. I don't personally believe that. I think his dosage of medication to deal with his crippling dementia was misapplied before that video was made. Regardless, Joe Biden says such domestic extremism is the greatest threat facing our country. Of course, he also says carbon dioxide is the greatest threat facing our planet. So hopefully no sane person gives any credence to anything that ridiculous caricature of a hate monger ever says. But the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation do have ways to harm people, and the fact that they are falsifying reports to amplify that bogus narrative about domestic extremism, well, that dishonesty is a serious issue. From the House of Representatives, Committee on the Judiciary, Ranking Member Jim Jordan, in a letter dated 27 July 2022, To Christopher A. Wray, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, quote, Dear Director Wray, we continue to hear from brave whistleblowers about disturbing conduct at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. From recent protected disclosures, we have learned that FBI officials are pressuring agents to reclassify cases as violent domestic extremism, even if the cases do not meet any criteria for such a classification. 
given the narrative pushed by the Biden administration that domestic violent extremism is the greatest threat facing our country, the revelation that the FBI may be artificially padding domestic terrorism data is scandalous, unquote. By the way, the guy at the FBI who may be facilitating that scandalous behavior is the same guy who led the effort to deliberately suppress the facts that prove Hunter and Joe Biden are among the worst criminals alive. Wait, that sounds serious. Yes, listeners, it's even more serious than I could describe. Here is a portion of a letter on 25 July 2022 from Senator Charles Grassley, ranking member of the Committee on the Judiciary, to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray. Quote, On May 31, 2022, I wrote to you regarding likely violations of federal laws, regulations, and Federal Bureau of Investigations guidelines by Assistant Special Agent in Charge Timothy Tybalt of the Washington Field Office. My letter also invited individuals, including current and former government employees, to contact me in my office to confidentially report allegations of fraud, waste, abuse, and gross mismanagement by FBI and Justice Department officials, including, but not limited to, ASAC Tybalt. In response, my office has received a significant number of protected communications from highly credible whistleblowers. The information provided to my office involves concerns about the FBI's receipt and use of derogatory information related to Hunter Biden and the FBI's false portrayal of acquired evidence as disinformation. The volume and consistency of these allegations substantiate their credibility and necessitate this letter, unquote. The letter goes on for a couple more pages. The clear text translation of what that whole matter is about is that the FBI knew Hunter and Joe Biden are deviant criminals engaged in outrageous international criminal activity and deliberately suppressed it and discredited it before the 2020 election as part of the overall effort to steal that election. Next, we'll review what actually happened on the 6th of January 2021 in the Capitol area. I've already explained now why over a million people were there and hinted at how the Democrats have reacted. We'll later get into why the Democrats are reacting specifically in the ways they have been, but this is a good time to summarize the actual events of that day in question. From all over the country, patriotic citizens gathered in hopes that the Democrats' attempts to overturn the true results of the 2020 election would at last be thwarted and corrected. Estimates on the number of attendees range from 1 to 3 million people. Many were in the area of D.C. called the Ellipse to hear President Trump speak. He started late and ran long on his speech. Meanwhile, Many other people were already close to the Capitol, which was about a 45-minute walk away from the Ellipse with such crowds. Here's a little audio clip of those supposedly dangerous people during that time. In addition to that rousing Pledge of Allegiance, the crowd also sang songs honoring America and prayed. There were metal crowd-directing barriers between the crowd and the Capitol building. Here's a man named Derek Kennison describing how he had brought medical triage gear to the event just in case anyone ended up needing first aid on such a day. He knew as many of us knew, even those of us who did not go to D.C., that enemies of the United States would likely infiltrate the event, 
as they, of course, did. I work security at, at, at my church, keeping people safe, you know, elderly, families, um, you know, women. So we were there just to kind of be the eyes and ears and protect. Um, uh, we all had medical gear on us. You know, we kept the Lord in it the whole time, prayed, we did church, we studied Proverbs. The Capitol Police did something that will shock listeners who have possibly gotten their information only from state-aligned media. They moved the barriers, thus letting the crowd all the way to the building. But of course, the Capitol building has huge doors, weighing about 2,000 pounds and magnetically sealed so that they can only be opened from the inside. So people would not be able to go into the building. Except the Capitol Police opened the doors and invited people inside. I saw a video on or about the 7th of January 2021, which also had audio. And on that video, a Capitol Police was standing at an open door, and he said to the calm people just outside the door, quote, I don't agree with this, but we were told to let you in, so come on, unquote. A couple of 74-year-old twin grandmothers were among those invited inside, and here's part of their description of such a strange but temporarily exciting moment. I took some photographs, I took a video, I talked to one Capitol Police officer and asked if, if he was upset that we were in there, and he just shook his head. There were about 10 of them lined up. They never said a word to any one of us. There were probably about 30 people in that area a small at one time. Space, very small, small space and they were saying usa so. and we didn't think we were doing anything wrong because the police were standing there i'm not saying you can't come in here those elderly ladies are now treated as criminals specifically violent insurrectionists but there were some actual violent people in the crowd as i mentioned Antifa BLM, the unofficial terror wing of the Democratic Party, was in attendance to cause as much mayhem as possible. Of course, FBI Director Chris Wray, whom we heard about earlier, remains in full denial mode about that. Certainly, we're, while we're equal opportunity and looking for uh, violent extremism of any, uh, of any ideology, uh, we have not to date seen any evidence of, uh, of anarchist violent extremists. But more trustworthy men, like Lieutenant General William G. Boykin, call nonsense on Director Ray's ridiculous and proven false claim. Christopher Ray testified that there is no Antifa, then uh, I, I put that in the category of, uh, of hot air. By the way, who is General Boykin? He's also 74 years old, like those dear twins we heard from. But he was a founding member of Delta Force, he was the commanding general of the Army Special Forces Command at Fort Bragg. He was the commanding general of the Special Warfare Center. And he was ultimately Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. His uniform was overwhelmed by decorations, award, ribbons, and badges. Purple Heart with Oak Leaf Cluster, Bronze Star, Legion of Merit, Combat Infantryman, Master Parachutist, Special Forces, Ranger, etc., etc. And when General Boykin says, Christopher Ray testified that there is no Antifa, then uh, I, I put that in the category of, uh, of hot air. I trust General Boykin and reject scandal-plagued Christopher Ray. I also trust General Thomas G. McInerney. He was a fighter pilot in Vietnam, worked his way up to being the commander of 11th Air Force, formerly known as Alaskan Air Command, and ultimately assistant vice chief of staff of the United States Air Force. He also earned two bronze stars, including a Valor device, Distinguished Flying Cross, Legion of Merit, and was inducted into both the Order of the Rising Sun by the government of Japan, as well as the United States Air Force Order of the Sword. He said of Director Chris Ray and all the Antifa BLM involvement on January 6th. J. Edgar Hoover would be proud of Director Ray. He's corrupt. We know Black Lives Matter was there. And we've identified them. And Antifa. 
And indeed, that's true. Some of the instigators who infiltrated the January 6 crowds were stupid enough to do some of their pre-planning and plotting on Zoom calls. Before I play a clip of some of their conspiratorial conversation, I should point out that Director Chris Ray's deceptive statement about there being no anarchists involved with January 6 could, with semantic wrangling, be less than actual perjury or lying to Congress. You see, Antifa BLM are actually socialists, thus aligned with large central government that has significant control and involvement in citizens' lives. That is actually the opposite of anarchy, which seeks no government at all. So, since Director Ray mentioned anarchists, he was actually avoiding answering the question about Antifa BLM infiltration into the January 6 crowds. Now here's a clip of some of the leftist infiltrators plotting via Zoom conversation. On the 5th, we're going to shut down the White House. There may be some people that are willing to break the windows to get into the government buildings. And in fact, their folks did break glass while Trump supporters shouted for them to stop breaking it. But can we name an Antifa BLM agitator who was part of it, since, after all, General McInerney said we identified some of them? Yes. For example, John Earl Sullivan. He's an Antifa BLM member, and he was at the Capitol and inside the Capitol on January 6. Here's audio of John Sullivan at an Antifa BLM riot way before January 6, instructing his followers that they need to violently remove Donald Trump from office. We got cops. You see the cops way behind us. We got rip Trump out of that office right over there. John Earl Sullivan sells black block riot gear online and explains to his fellow domestic terrorists why they need it. You cannot have anything that they would be able to come back and identify you at the end of the day. Now, here is audio of John Earl Sullivan inside the Capitol on January 6, inciting anyone else he can to commit violence. He tells them, we gotta burn it down. We gotta, we gotta burn the, we gotta get this He also tells the people inside the Capitol that he had a knife. Let me do, I got a knife, I got a, I got a knife. He told the Capitol Police, basically, to stand down in that area where he was. We want you to go home, I'm recording. And there's so many people. It's just, they're going to push their way up here. And incredibly, the Capitol Police followed his instruction. Then John Sullivan told the bewildered crowd, you gotta go for it. We have go! Go! Let's go! Later, John Sullivan and his girlfriend, who is also part of Antifa BLM, were standing in the Capitol and celebrating that they duped the peaceful Trump supporters into unwittingly committing acts in front of cameras that would surely bolster the pre-planned false flag narrative that Trump supporters were engaging in violence in the Capitol. You were right, we did it. Dude, I was trying to tell you. I, I couldn't say much. You were right. It's worth mentioning that John Earl Sullivan sold his video on which he incited violence, celebrated duping peaceful Trump supporters, and actually recorded the only death that occurred in the Capitol that day. He sold it for $90,000. It's also worth mentioning that while peaceful Trump supporters, who have been charged with things like parading and trespassing, have been locked in horrific conditions in pretrial confinement for over 400 days, John Earl Sullivan was released after one day. It's also worth noting that Nancy Pelosi and her commission have had no interest in talking to or about John Earl Sullivan as they supposedly investigate January 6th. You know why. So, because people had moved toward the building once the Capitol Police purposefully removed the barriers to cause that outcome, and because people had gone inside the building when the Capitol Police opened the doors and invited them inside, 
other Capitol Police outside the building started reacting as if this were an out-of-control riot, thereby practically causing that as a sort of self-fulfilling act. Derek Kennison describes part of that. There were, there were people heading towards the Capitol, um, you know, before the speech was, was done. We're getting reports that Antifa is doing stuff at the Capitol. And so we started heading towards the Capitol. I mean, it was just a very intense situation. We helped the guy and got his head busted open. Um, you know, people were getting hit with, uh, they started doing uh, pepper balls through the like paintball guns. They were doing, uh, obviously, batons. Um, rubber bullets. We actually had like a little triage station. There's a place where people could sit and we busted out the uh, the wipes and eye wash because there was a whole lot of people. There was a lot of people that were pepper sprayed. Yeah, I ended up getting shot in the chest with a flashbang. We saw a set of open doors. Uh, my partner Tony, he looked at me, I looked at him, he said, what do you think about that? And I said, I don't like it. He said, no, that's, that, that's like a spider web. It feels like a trap. And inside, some of that Capitol Police activity became absolutely tragic. Air Force veteran Ashley Babbitt was among the Trump supporters who accepted the Capitol Police invitation to walk into the building. She was cordially conversing with the Capitol Police inside the building. But an Antifa BLM member, complete with the kind of riot gear helmet, similar to what John Earl Sullivan sold online, started banging on the glass of a closed interior door. By the way, John Earl Sullivan himself was a few feet away capturing audio and video of that Antifa BLM comrade of his and cheering him on. Now you see, the Capitol Police were, as they said, instructed to let people into the building. But they were definitely not to let people beyond certain points. On the other side of that locked interior door was another Capitol Police who had his firearm trained, not on the person bashing his helmet on the glass with his hands, but at the adjacent door's glass area. Ashley Babbitt told the Capitol Police that the guy bashing the door was not a Trump supporter, but was Antifa. Don't you want to stop him from breaking the door? They did not. She, an Air Force veteran, never one to back away from such a situation, approached the Antifa member who was bashing the door with his helmet. Once she was in the area where the other Capitol Police had his pistol trained, he shot her and killed her. <laughs> Ashley Babbitt was the only person killed at the Capitol on January 6th and the only person whose death is actually directly attributable to the events of that day. Media stories try to convince people otherwise. But let's talk about that shooting. The Capitol Police stood by as the guy with the helmet smashed the door. But as soon as any peaceful Trump supporter got near, that is absolutely wrong on so many levels. Besides the obvious, and besides the implicit horrific elements of that crime, think about the action of firing first before any other action against Ashley Babbitt. Capitol Police are trained in a progression of force. Here's a force continuum on which police trainees are tested for knowledge, comprehension, understanding, and practical application. Level 1. Officer Presence. This is sometimes called Level 0 because it involves no particular action. Level 2. Verbal Commands. These are typically shouted commands like, Stop! or halt, or freeze, or don't move. Level three, empty hand control. When words fail, law enforcement officers may get physical against a perpetrator of unacceptable behavior. Within this category, there are two sub-levels. Soft, empty hand techniques, such as holds and restraints, and hard, empty hand techniques, such as punches or kicks. 
I would opine that in the corridor of the Capitol, in the situation we're reviewing, empty hand control would likely have been inapplicable because of the doors making confrontational angles awkward. Level four, pepper spray, baton, or taser. From the police training materials I reviewed, quote, when a suspect is violent or threatening, more extreme but non-deadly measures must be used to bring the suspect under control or effect an arrest. Before moving to this level of force, it is assumed that less physical measures, such as verbal commands, have already been tried, unquote. Level 5. Less than lethal force. From training materials, quote, This is a newer, acceptable, and effective level of force that numerous police agencies have added to their use of force continuum. Less than lethal weapons were developed to provide law enforcement, military, and corrections personnel with an alternative to lethal force. They were designed to temporarily incapacitate, confuse, delay, or restrain an adversary in a variety of situations. They have been used in riots, prison disturbances, and hostage rescues. Less lethal weapons are valuable when lethal force is not appropriate or lethal force is available as a backup, but lesser force may subdue the aggressor or Lethal force is justified, but its use could cause serious collateral effects, such as injury to bystanders or damage to the environment. Unquote. That training specifically describes the situation at the Capitol that had developed at that point. Level 6, the last resort, deadly force. For police to finally resort to deadly force there are certain conditions that are considered reasonably and appropriately to cause that choice at the conclusion of the force continuum or progression of force. Those are outlined and explained in the Code of Federal Regulations 1047.7. You already intuitively and reasonably understand that they involved imminent danger of death or serious bodily harm. Some of you may know the name of the Capitol Police who shot Ashley Babbitt. I won't bother stating his name, but he was a lieutenant, and he knew better, so it was no accident. And he had his firearm trained on the door to the right of the Antifa thug who was bashing the glass, not at the violent man committing that crime. The lieutenant did not give any verbal command to Ashley Babbitt as she approached to confront the Antifa member. The lieutenant did not use any of the typical non-deadly measures like pepper spray, baton, or taser. The lieutenant did not attempt any less than lethal force. Instead, as soon as Ashley Babbitt came into his pre-trained line of fire and without regard for the uninvolved persons behind her, that was all. Just... We'll probably never know what motivated that well-trained police officer to take that approach because he was never charged with any inappropriate use of force and not questioned about it by the so-called investigators. Clearly, you can see that the investigators are not actually investigating anything relevant to the claims they're peddling. But it's time for us to examine why the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and her January 6th commission are doing what they are doing. It is absolutely, positively not a pursuit of truth. It's absolutely, positively not an evidentiary hearing with any rules of evidence. It's absolutely, positively not a legitimate legal hearing, as one would expect if any criminality were alleged. It is, therefore, primarily about advancing a narrative We've already shown that their narrative is bogus and false, but let's get specific about that because that reveals their motivation clearly. Pelosi and company hate President Trump. They want you to hate him too. They know they have failed to win against him in either of the elections he entered, 
even though his first ever election was for the highest office, which many career politicians pursue their entire adult lives. They resent President Trump for that, and they resent President Trump for exposing that business as usual in D.C. was really outrageously swampy and corrupt. They fought so hard to win against him in his second election campaign, but they've put forward a candidate of their own who could not campaign at all and drew no interest in the few instances when he went out for public appearances. They knew Trump would win re-election. And on the 3rd of November 2020, they observed, as we did, that Trump did win re-election in spite of the massive cheating and fraud the Democrats had perpetrated. So they called timeout in several states, expelled the observers, and changed those states' results overnight. We all witnessed that. There's no theory about it. It's recorded fact. We saw it happen on television. When President Trump called them out on it, they coordinated with their media allies to label every bit of discussion about that topic the big lie. That was bizarre, of course, since the Democrats had claimed that Trump did not legitimately win in 2016, and they sought to invalidate electors along with other actions. Courts refused to hear any of the legal challenges about the election irregularities, which prompted the Democrats to claim falsely that courts had heard the cases and declared the results legitimate. In fact, the courts did not hear the cases. A strategy developed to follow a legal process whereby during the certification of election results on the 6th of January, several congresspersons would challenge the results from their own states. This would cause debate to follow, which would potentially end in a vote based on one vote per state with the majority party from each individual state having the say in that. Republicans had more state majorities, so they would win that question. Pelosi strategized herself that she must stop this from happening. Indeed, the timing of the Capitol Police removing the barriers and opening the doors was such that it disrupted that very process. Even though, as I mentioned before, President Trump had not finished his remarks in time for those supporters listening at the ellipse to arrive at the Capitol by that time. Oops, Pelosi narrative busted from the start. But in spite of the actual events as I recounted them in this review, and in spite of the timing of the events, and in spite of President Trump having earlier authorized National Guard and troop presence for the purpose of ensuring safety, and in spite of President Trump sending out a message to supporters that they should leave because some miscreants had committed violence, in spite of all those things, Pelosi and company have continued to describe the events of January 6, 2021 by a specific singular word, insurrection. I'll describe momentarily the details of President Trump's authorization of military presence and his same-day exhortation for supporters to leave, but now it's time to explain why Pelosi and her mindless media servants use the word insurrection like a mantra. Everything Pelosi and company are doing is to disqualify President Trump from running for office again. They know by observing that they cannot beat him in America, since he did the exact job that voters sent him to D.C. to do, and patriots overwhelmingly support him continuing that job. But if they can keep him off the ballot, then Pelosi and company can finally prevail over their nemesis, the pro-American Donald John Trump. The use of the term insurrection is to aid in that attempt they are making. According to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, quote, No person shall be a senator or a representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in 
insurrection, or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability, unquote. So, the laughable and outrageous January 6th Commission is flailing wildly and ridiculously in a singular attempt to bolster a narrative that President Trump engaged in insurrection or incited insurrection or comforted enemies of the Constitution of the United States. I've already mentioned that the process for challenging the election results is constitutional, and I've noted that Democrats wanted to do that in 2016. It should be obvious that people who have concerns about the validity of election results are not enemies of the United States Constitution. Every decent citizen should want elections to be fair and just. So, that leaves the Pelosi and Democrat strategy to try to convince people that President Trump not only wanted violence and chaos to disrupt proceedings at the Capitol, but that he therefore acted in order to cause or incite it. I'm going to prove Pelosi and company are lying, of course. To start this part of the episode, I want to look briefly at the later parts of that day, January 6. A strong push lately has been to try to convince people that President Trump callously failed to speak out about the violence that had erupted, which I detailed earlier in the episode. In fact, Joe Biden just gave a bizarre, non-blinking, slurring, gross statement about some sort of medieval hell that President Trump watched uncaringly. The demand seems to be that President Trump should have gone on television to address the people and tell them to be peaceful. Well, that's just stupid. The people at the Capitol were not seeing television sets, but they had smartphones and many would have eyes on Twitter as a matter of course. Therefore, President Trump did tell the people at the Capitol to remain peaceful And when it was clear the situation was not improving quickly, President Trump urged people to leave, even if they had no part in any inappropriate actions. At 2.39 p.m. Washington, D.C. time, President Trump sent this message, quote, Please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful! Exclamation point. End quote. At 3.13 p.m., President Trump sent this message, quote, I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violence! Exclamation point. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. End quote. So, provably, President Trump called for peace and lawful behavior exclusively. Democrat claims to the contrary are lies as always. But the even larger focus of Democrat lies is regarding the ridiculous and proven false claims that President Trump encouraged or incited anything chaotic, violent, or riotous on January 6th or ever. Let's prove conclusively that the January 6th Commission is lying about that principal focus and claim of their literally made-for-television charade. Pelosi and Liz Cheney are trying to claim that President Trump didn't want any security at the Capitol on the 6th of January and that therefore he must have wanted some violence or chaos to erupt. Well, in case you don't already know it, I can prove that President Trump explicitly called for overwhelming security presence. And Pelosi, along with D.C. Mayor Bowser, explicitly did not want it. Given what we know already about Pelosi's role in all of this, one could credibly wonder if she may have actually incited and orchestrated violence. Liz Cheney of the January 6th Commission gave an interview to Brett Baer, and he asked her about President Trump authorizing up to 20,000 National Guard or troops 
to keep the peace and maintain security on January 6. Specifically, that President Trump had told that to Acting Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley days prior in a meeting at the White House. Liz Cheney responded that Chris Miller testified contrary to that. Well, his own acting secretary of defense says that's not true. Chris Miller has testified publicly that Donald Trump never issued any order to deploy the guard to protect the Capitol. Uh, and, and so I would point people to his own secretary of defense's public testimony. Liz Cheney's choice of the word order is critical because it's how she can deceive the audience without actually lying verbatim. It's still utterly dishonest of her, and she unwittingly obliterated her own case against President Trump. She completely exonerated President Trump, whether she meant to or not. She said that Chris Miller testified that President Trump did not order troops to be deployed in the Capitol area. Chris Miller actually said that President Trump authorized up to 20,000 troops or National Guard, but left the actual order to Mayor Bowser and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The meeting was uh, one. Of, it was one of the serious kind of heavy meetings I've been in, and it was about a foreign threat that was directed towards the United States, which obviously we can't talk to for about for fear of you know ended up in jail. And uh, so I want to. I, I kind of want to like be clear. The president, as we're leaving. It says, hey, one more thing. And we all sat back down and we discussed what was going on in January 6th. I don't want to because I think that's important to bring up so that uh, the opposition doesn't get this idea that this was the purpose of the meeting. The president was doing exactly what I expect the commander in chief to do, any commander in chief to do. He was looking at the broad threats against the United States, and he brought this up as on his own. We did not bring it up. Both Speaker Pelosi and Mayor Bowser refused to have any National Guard or troops present, which would have kept the peace by their sheer overwhelming presence. A reasonable, prudent person could conclude that Speaker Pelosi and Mayor Bowser wanted violence and made conditions explicitly to cause it. Remember, the Capitol Police removed barriers opened doors, and welcomed peaceful people into the Capitol building. And remember that Antifa BLM planned ahead of time to break glass and stir up chaos, which they then did, and which they then celebrated as having fooled everybody. Here's an excerpt from a letter from Mayor Muriel Bowser of the District Columbia to Jeffrey Rosen, the acting United States Attorney General, Ryan McCarthy, the Secretary of the Army, and Chris Miller, the Acting Secretary of Defense, on 5 January 2021, in response to the request that President Trump had told Secretary Miller and General Milley to make for 10 to 20,000 service members to keep the peace and ensure security on the 6th of January. Quote, To be clear, the District of Columbia is not requesting other federal law enforcement personnel and discourages any additional deployment, unquote. Why would President Trump only authorize and recommend the deployment of troops rather than explicitly ordering them? Because the Posse Comitatus Act, 18 United States Code, Section 1385, forbids that, quote, whoever except in cases and under circumstances expressly authorized by the Constitution or Act of Congress, willfully uses any part of the Army or Air Force as a posse comitatus or otherwise to execute the laws, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than two years or both, unquote. In other words, it would have been illegal for President Trump to have ordered the security force he authorized and recommended, unless Congress had acted to make exception for that situation. Liz Cheney totally exonerated President Trump when she noted that he did not order the troops. Of course, Liz Cheney falsely tried to implicate President Trump for not doing that, which is illegal. The bottom line is, 
President Trump did exactly the right, correct, wise, and legal things. General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was in the 4 January 2021 meeting with President Trump. General Milley was interviewed by the Inspector General as part of their review of the DOD's roles, responsibilities, and actions to prepare for and respond to the protest and its aftermath at the U.S. Capitol campus on January 6, 2021. On page 31 of that Department of Defense Inspector General report, which was filed on the 16th of November, 2021, that 4 January 2021 meeting is reviewed, quote, Mr. Miller, Secretary of Defense, and General Milley met with the President at the White House at 5.30 p.m. The primary topic they discussed was unrelated to the scheduled rally. General Milley told us, the Inspector General team, that at the end of the meeting, the President told Mr. Miller there would be a large number of protesters on January 6, 2021, and Mr. Miller should ensure sufficient National Guard or soldiers would be there to make sure it was a safe event, unquote. Boom. The entire premise of the January 6th commission is bogus. President Trump did right before and after the events of that day, and any thinking person on that commission knows it. They are deliberately lying to you. There are more aspects to the outrageous gaslighting the Democrats and their media lackeys have been trying to perpetrate against you. But at least with the information I've shared in this episode, and which you can research within open source documents, you know certainly that Pelosi, Cheney, and the entire January 6th commission are false and corrupt to their core. President Trump acted legally and prudently. Have a blessed day. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.